How many of you are thinking that that's where the subject of lust is going to come up in the communion passage? (laughs) Yeah, this is fun. So here we go. Do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written. That's verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10. The people sat down to eat and drink and then there's this little interlude. And they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. In case you were wondering what that meant, they rose up to play. Don't you do what they did and sexual immorality is it. It's a typical uh, fraternity sorority party, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Uh-oh, that's a, this is in the communion passage. I never knew it until I started preaching this sermon. Wait, nor let us tempt Christ. I mean, how in the world? This is some wild language in here. Don't let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to humans. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now the last three verses back to communion. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of the Lord. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one body and one bread. We all partake of that one bread. Wow. Kind of blew my mind. I've been preaching for 42 years, and in those 42 years, I never noticed that between the beginning and the end of the New Testament's greatest communion passage, there's this stuff about sexual immorality, idolatry, fornication. Now, the two big words in lust, when you see lust, the two big words that come to us are sexual immorality or fornication, that's a lust word, and adultery, that's a lust word. Now, you don't hear sermons much on either of them, but here's what I want to say about why I think it's relevant, again, to preach the seven deadly sins. I want to ask this question. How many think in our society we get bombarded with sex? Raise your hands. Now, doesn't it strike you strange that almost hands are up all over the auditorium? Yep, I get bombarded with it, but we never talk about it in church. I think that's strange. Has the church gone deaf and dumb and blind? I mean, everywhere we go, sex sells. I remember one day, a young man, all the virility. You know, young means you're lean and mean. Old means you're plumping and slumping, you know. But that's, uh, 
There's a difference. These were the lean and mean days, and I'm at the George Foreman Larry Holmes fight in Atlantic City. And they're just going to ding the bell between rounds. But the most beautiful woman in a bikini stands up to hold up the card to tell you what the rounds are. How does that make it in the middle of a world championship heavyweight fight? Sex sells. I mean, have a light beer commercial. Everybody watching a football game knows how good a, a beer tastes, you know. But when it comes time for the beer to be given, the Swedish bikini team drops in a hot air balloon from the sky. Sex sells. And the Bible speaks about uh, fornication and adultery. Now, to define the terms, fornication is the word used in, for premarital sex and calls it a sin. Adultery is extramarital sex, and it's a sin. Now, I read one ancient commentary, because in the Ten Commandments, anybody know where the word thou shalt commit adultery appears? Anybody? Somebody does, because I had a conversation with them this last week about it. The word thou shalt not commit adultery appears between thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not murder. And in the fourth century, a well-known pastor said, the reason it's there is because if you have sex with somebody else's mate, you rob them of their covenant. And you kill the only chance they had to be whole exclusively with that one person in God's covenant. Blew my mind when I read it a pastor speaking about that. When do you ever hear anything like that in church? When do you ever hear the sermon like that in church? Only the guy that's not afraid if they give him an early retirement <laughs> is going to dare to preach on the subject. Thou shalt not commit sexual immorality or adultery. Hey, I want to say this. Uh, let's talk about something deeper than that. You see, God designed human sexuality to be an exclusive, reciprocal relationship. And last week when we spoke about charity, we spoke about the, def the best definition of charity is self-giving love. Self-giving love. Now that sets up the boundaries for the best human sexuality. It's designed to be in a covenant of God. That's the way God gave himself to you. For God so loved the world, he gave. And today as we take communion, here's what you're going to hear. Jesus says, this bread is my body given for you. My body given for you. You know what it says in sexuality in the book of Ephesians? It says, wives, remember, your bodies don't belong to you anymore. Uh-oh. And then it turns around and says the same thing about men. That talks about sexuality. It's no longer just about us. Human sexuality is not set up predominantly for self-gratification, no matter how much enjoyment there is in the sexual experience. It's meant to be self-gratification. 
giving love instead of give me gratification. You see, we live in a world where it's give me, give me, give me. It's a world of pride. I have a right to it. It's a word of greed. The first two uh, uh, in, the, in the seven deadly sins, pride and greed, it's mine. Give me, and then you get to lust, and it's still the same thing. Give me. But what about if the Bible is right, and the best relationship is the one that says, my body's not mine. It's given to you. I'm in a covenant with you. And you know how you learn about this? You learn about this because the opposite is chastity. I'm just curious because I've been in the ministry 42 years and I've never heard one single sermon on the subject of chastity. Anybody heard one? Pastor preach on? Now, you've heard sermons about purity because that's what the word chastity means. I always thought it was just chastity, it was purity, all around this idea of sex. But do you know in the largest New Testament passage on the lusts of the flesh, sex is just a small part of what it means to lust. Listen to it from Galatians chapter 5. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you, you do not do the things that you wish. Let's plug the old RSV. It's not about self-gratification. See, that's what they're saying. But if you are led by the spirit, you do not do these. Now, the, the works, exact Greek word for the lusts of the flesh, are evident, and here they are. Adultery and fornication, there, there's the two big sexual words. But what's interesting is this passage is huge. Now listen to what the New Testament teaches in its largest section on what lust is. Uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, meaning believing wrong things about the scripture. Now listen to this, it's not over. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand just as I always told you in the past. Now listen to this. It's mind-blowing. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What? Are you, you know mind-blowing that is? You mean to tell me if I'm getting quarrelsome? If I'm, I'm caught up in jealousies and pettiness? If there's strife, if there's dissension, you're in danger of losing your soul over that. Yeah. Because what sits at the center is not a man who belongs to God or a woman who belongs to God. 
What sits at the center of that kind of a life is a person who reserves the right to play God himself or herself. I want. Lust follows greed and pride. And I want. So how in the world do you get around this thing? Pat, I want you to come up because you're going to be in a different slot than you were. So uh, come on, come on up. Do you know how I found the best way to talk about what's God's remedy for this? I mean, if, it, if it's important enough that it can cost your soul and a preacher is going to dare to take on the task on a Sunday morning, I guess you ought to hear the gospel and what's the medicine about it, right? You know where I found the gospel and the medicine, what the medicine is for people who make lust and self-gratification the primary thing in their life? You know what it is? It's people who learn how to be pure and get it done the way God wants it to be done. That we're not living our life for a give me gratification. We're living our lives to give ourselves away in the everlasting name of Jesus Christ. You know where I had to go to find out the meaning of purity? I had to go to the oldest set of rituals on marriage that I could find in the church. They're ancient. I'm going to talk about these three ancient things after uh, Patrick sings a song of reverence about ancient words. world they resound with God's own heart oh let the ancient words impart words of life words of hope give us strength help us cope in this world where'er we roam Ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. Holy words of our faith handed down to this age came to us through sacrifice. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. Ancient words ever true, changing me changing you we have come with open hearts oh let the ancient words impart ancient words ever true 
changing me and changing you we have come with open hearts oh let the ancient words impart we have come with open hearts oh let the ancient words impart here are the ancient words from the oldest tradition in the wedding ceremonies. When the bride walked down the altar, there were three components to the bridal regalia. She had a long dress. The length of that dress was meant to mean everything that I own. You know, I didn't realize until preparing this sermon that Doreen and I, she should have got married in a miniskirt. We didn't own anything. You know? <laughs> We got that one wrong. We, we, we should have had a mini school. We didn't own anything. We were just getting out of school. We were po, po, po. But it didn't just mean what you own. It meant who you are. There was nothing held back. Do you know one time, true story, over by Atlantic City, I was in a counseling scenario and the wife asked me, she, she said she didn't trust her husband's work ethic. And she asked me if she was compelled to disclose that her rich uncle had left her $10 million set up in a Swiss bank account. I went home and I told Doreen, honey, now if I've offended you, I want you to know if you have $10 million you haven't told me about, we can work through it. You know, it's, uh, and then her... Her rich, the same rich uncle went on to leave her $100 million. He was an oil man from, from Texas. Sadly, that marriage broke. But I'd never been asked the question if a bride was compelled to tell her husband that she had $10 million that he didn't know about. What was broken? What was broken is that they couldn't share and the first part of the regalia is the length of the gown. Everything that I have, I bring here to you. What I don't have, I bring to you. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Second part of the regalia, a veil, a covering of the head. And usually the dad lifts it up, kisses the daughter, gives it. Now, there were some ancient parts of that ceremony, but I want to say here is the Bible verse represented in the veil. It was meant that the husband and the wife would subject themselves to one another in love. And if you can't do that, there's something wrong in the relationship. Subject yourself to one another in love. And part three was the, the gown was usually white. Many people thought it was virginity, but there was no prohibition for a, in a second marriage where the mate died, she could have seven children and still wear a white gown. I'm just saying, I doubt she was a virgin after seven children. I think maybe Jesus is the only story like that. But the white was still permitted. Why? Because the white meant there's nothing mixed about this relationship it's exclusively and purely between the two of us and we're going to be one now here's the amazing thing people about the gospel this morning do you know that the bible says that you that we that i am the bride of christ 
And the way the bride of Christ gets beyond the lust that says, it's all about me, is we bring everything we have and commit it to Jesus. We subject ourselves to him and to one another in love. And when we do, it's such a unique relationship that the power of the covenant is released in us so that one day we're a bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle in all of eternity. That's the final commentary on who you are and who I am. And do you know where it all begins? It begins with a Savior that says, it's not about me, it's about you. Think of the God who regarded not equality with God, a thing to hold on to, but he emptied himself, and when he did, here were his words. This bread is my very body given to you. This cup is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Bride, give it all to Jesus because the cup and the bread means he gives it all to you. And in that sacred relationship, self-giving love becomes the benchmark witness of the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.